How does one tell a good cell from a bad cell? A cancerous or senescent cell from a healthy, normal cell? Traditional medicines, small molecules, peptides, proteins, they stick to things. They block or they activate. They up or they downregulate some process relevant to a disease. They're very powerful, but they're pretty ignorant to their surroundings. Hopefully you get the medicine where you need it and in the right dose. But a new wave of companies, including our guests, Oshin Biotechnologies, are riding on recent advances in drug and gene delivery that are enabling a kind of information therapeutics. That is, they are able to both identify target cells, not visibly, but genetically, and then selectively destroy those cancerous or aged senescent cells, a drug that would include a diagnostic targeting system right within it. Drugs are getting smarter. This is the Tomorrow Scale Podcast. I'm Justin Briggs. The Tomorrow Scale Podcast is a series of conversations with the scientists and entrepreneurs who are building the future. We explore cutting edge technologies with huge potential and go deep to understand how these founders and inventors must chart entirely new territory to bring their technology to market. We have discussions on a wide range of scientific frontiers, from life sciences to AI, nanotech and materials, to the very food we eat. And we'll talk about impacts, time horizons, and what's coming next. We'll learn, quite literally, how science fiction becomes reality. This is the Tomorrow Scale Podcast. Uh, Matt Schultz, Oshin Biotechnologies, and Onko Senex, CEO of two very interesting drug development companies. Let's go back to the start and, and learn how you guys got started. My background is kind of unique for uh, for the field in that I, I came out of uh, computer science uh, mostly and had uh, really got into bio with this this North Star that the essence of life is information. And so, you know, having spent years programming things, you don't, you know, try to say debug Microsoft Word by changing microchips in your computer. You you debug it by changing the software. And not that you couldn't manipulate the hardware, but it, it tends to lead to lots of unintended consequences. And so as you got into medicine, uh, kind of looking at at life, saying, gosh, you know, your your body makes everything it, it has with these genetic instructions. It can can turn a cup of coffee into mac. Um, so why is it that we aren't spending more time manipulating information in the body as opposed to chemistry in the body. And it's kind of led down a, a long path at this point, uh, starting with trying to build, you know, what amounted to a, an app store for the human body with my uh, first biotech company, uh, Immusaw, and where we produced uh, long-lived plasma cells that secreted therapeutics. And now into Oshin and Arcosenex, where we're effectively uh, killing cells based on what they're thinking. So based on the genetic pathways that are active. And I think that this allows you to do things that would be difficult, if not impossible, to do in chemistry and takes advantage of the fact that the, the body's own internal damage detection systems, in this case, are far more exquisite than anything we could build with chemistry. And so take me through the, the, the technology itself. Uh, you've licensed a delivery technology from your partner and collaborator, Dr. John Lewis from Entos Pharmaceuticals in the University of Alberta, this fusogenic peptide lipid nanoparticle. How does it work? Yeah, it's a, 
It's an important piece. So uh, <clears throat> if you're familiar with uh, lipid nanoparticles in general or older liposomal vector technology, most of these things, you know, it, it's basically a, a fat bubble with something inside. They're about the size of a virus. And uh, most of them gain entry into cells using charge chemistry. So the, the lipids are either positively or negatively charged or conditionally so in the new ones. And, uh, and that charge allows them to disrupt the membrane of the cell and, uh, and get inside. The problem with that is, is that when the concentration goes up, um, they become very toxic. And you can see this, you know, clear as day in a dish where you just keep increasing the concentration and pretty soon all of your cells are dead. But uh, in the body, if you administer this IV, it will concentrate naturally in places like the liver. And so they become severely toxic to the liver. And that basically, you know, caused a major problem for this entire class of technology. It's been known for quite some time that uh, neutrally charged lipids aren't, aren't toxic, that you can tolerate large doses of them. But then you also don't have the tool they were using to get into the cells. So they're not very effective at gaining entry to cells at that point. And so... What makes ours unique is that it's neutrally charged, but it gets into the cell with a little fusion peptide on the surface. And this thing, it, it's quite fascinating. It was uh, isolated from a reptilian orthorhovirus, the kind of virus that normally infects the stomachs of alligators or birds. And it's the smallest uh, documented fusion protein that's sufficient for membrane fusion by more than 100 times. So it, it's super, super tiny. And what it does normally is it just fuses adjacent cells together. That's what the virus uses it for. But if you embed it in, a, in the wall of a nanoparticle, then you can use it to gain entry into cells. So this is a fascinating aspect that I hadn't, um, uh, I, I didn't real, realize before. The, the fusogenic peptide on the uh, lipid nanoparticle is actually uh, derived from a virus. So essentially, you are bridging the gap essentially between kind of a lipid particle mycel uh, delivery system and a kind of a viral vector type approach by leveraging just that piece. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's it's entirely man-made, but it does have that virus-like characteristic about it, like how it gains entry into the cell. And so it, it obviously can't replicate it. It doesn't have genes for that. But also what what's makes it unique is that the part of that peptide that sticks out of the surface is only 14 amino acids long. It's basically invisible. Like I said it's two orders of magnitude smaller than the nearest peptide of its kind. And so we can administer this for years on end and not elicit an immune reaction, which is something that you can't do with a virus and you can't do it even with normal viral fusion proteins. Like if you took a fusion protein from like measles or HIV or something like that, like you would, you know, raise all sorts of alarm bells in the immune system. It, it would not work more than once if, if at all. And uh, so this kind of unique attribute of it being super tiny and being on a on a vector that's effectively man-made um, really gives it some interesting attributes, and we exploit those. Uh, they're, they're important. One of the drawbacks of, of lipid nanoparticles is that they do kind of, you know, indiscriminately get absorbed into all these different cells, and so you get off-target effects that you may not want um, uh, in, in addition to the toxicity. But you kind of flip the script, so to speak, where you say you want to get into all the cells because you're a bit, you essentially have a ride-along with a companion diagnostic as part of this. How does how do you move beyond the lipid nanoparticle into almost this nanobot kind of gene therapy approach? Well, yeah, I think, you know, fundamentally what we've done is we've taken targeting out of the realm of chemistry and brought it into the realm of information. 
And you can target the nanoparticle to a certain extent. Um, I mean, I, I don't think most of the targeting on them works that well, to be honest, but like people do it. The, uh, but when we started using this, we intentionally stripped out anything like that. And so I wanted the delivery vehicle to be indiscriminate and the payload to be specific because the, the targeting is all handled down the realm of DNA. So we decide, you know, how it activates based on the promoter activity inside the cell. And so that way, like, I mean, we'll hit the healthy cells just like we do the damaged or the cancer cells. It just won't hurt them. And I think it you have far better control over targeting in that realm than you do in the chemical realm. I mean, you can think of, a, I guess, an alternative would be something like an antibody drug conjugate where they, they take some poison that's really nasty and they attach it to an antibody and hopefully the antibody sticks to the target cells and less so to other cells. But as anyone who's ever taken those things or paid much attention to them can tell you that it's not like they work perfectly, that they are better than just administering the poison, you know, directly into your veins, but, uh, but they fall off their antibody. They like don't always conjugate equal numbers. Like there's other cells that have those markers on them. You can only hit extracellular yeah. targets, you know? Yeah, exactly. Which is a huge yeah, limitation. So there. In this case, like we're, we're doing something that's fundamentally the opposite of a pharmaceutical drug project, like where we said we, we want no targeting in chemistry, only in information. And, uh, and so like, there's, I mean, there's all sorts of ways to, you know, to optimize and finesse these things, but fundamentally it's a, it's a logic gate written in DNA. And that's, that's where the bulk of all this happens. And so in the case of, uh, you know, like going after a tumor, you could look at the tumor before you ever took the treatment and know if it will work or not based on its genetics. So it, you can see like you could test in a dish really if you wanted to also but uh the uh the genetic activity can be assayed in advance if you want and for the purposes of, you know in practical use in oncology you know like most of the patients you'd be getting were already metastatic um because this is you know an experimental treatment and so you you're going to be hitting things across the body anyway so you want the metastases as much or more as the primary tumor so yeah, you can practically extract all the metastatic lesions to look at them, I suppose. But, um, so knowing that you can hit them, even if you can't see them, is important. Well, it's it, it's huge, and you you on the one hand are incorporating that diagnostic and therapeutic in 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 one um, is really unable to to happen. Period uh, with current um, uh, modalities, the therapeutic aspect when you're developing a new platform typically try the lowest hanging fruit and you're going after aging and you're going after cancer. Those are not exactly low hanging fruit, but you've got a specific strategy there. Tell us, tell us how uh, these two companies that you founded are, are approaching this technology. Yeah, well, in, in our mind, I suppose the uh, solid tumors are the low hanging fruit, which uh, I recognize might sound a little odd, but uh, they're, the plan is to, I mean, well, I guess, first of all, we, we're going after cancer first, primarily because the FDA doesn't think aging is a disease. There's not a clear clinical path after aging directly. Um, so you got, you go after specific diseases tied to aging, you know, and, uh, and start from there. Right. But whenever you have something that is, is new, especially something that is going to be viewed with as much scrutiny as a gene therapy, I think it, you want to find a disease that's, that's really lethal. So the, the risk reward benefit is there. And uh, so we're we're starting in uh, taking all comers with solid tumors, and the the site we're starting with will be enriched for uh, for lung, colorectal, 
and uh, pancreatic, I think, primarily. But I think that uh, small cell lung cancer is a good punitive first target because it has really pretty lousy standard of care. And uh, and from a, a scientific point of view, our biodistribution to the lungs is really good. The, they get hit like a freight train by the nanoparticles. And, uh, and lung cancer in general tends to have a high P53 mutational burden, which is something that is correlated with success in the treatment. In the clinic, by having both the diagnostic and the therapeutic in one, that kind of gives you an advantage. And I've seen in some of the materials where this has started to at least materialize in some of the preclinical work. What are you able to see in some of your modeling um, that kind of sets that gives you a, a view into the future in, in terms of your development plan a little bit? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting. At the beginning, uh, you know, we this isn't uh, the tools we have to look at the tumor aren't recognized as clinically validated diagnostics yet. It's actually why we're taking all comers and not uh, doing it as a companion diagnostic directly. So the the goal for this is eventually to be on label for all solid tumors with elevated levels of P53 transcription factors. But uh, to do that, you need to convince the FDA or whatever regulator you're dealing with that that assay is indeed predictive. And so the the tools we've been using uh, for our preclinical modeling uh, are, are pretty effective, but they're not like in the form of a, a clinically approved assay yet. And so what we're doing in the first trials, we just take all comers and we'll run all of our assays. We have like three different ways we look at this typically um, from like a transcriptional activity to immunohistochemistry to general bioinformatics and the gene sequence. And, uh, and so we'll look at all those in this phase one and then we'll see how accurate it really is in human tumors as opposed to ones that are used in preclinical models. And the goal then will be to recruit patients and bucket them based on how they come out of there in, in the effort of getting the regulars to recognize that this is indeed predictive and should be used that way. So that it in a in a preclinical system, in a mouse, you can do something that's kind of interesting and in that you could make the the DNA not just encode the suicide gene, but also encode a reporter like luciferous, you know, to make the cells light up or GFP to make them fluoresce. And you can administer this. And in the case of luciferous, you can actually image the animal before you treat it. So you inject the nanoparticle, you image it, and you can see the cells light up that you're going to kill. And then you can activate the suicide gene and they'll all die. Like it, it's pretty amazing actually. But uh, I don't think the regulators are going to let us put luciferous constructs into humans anytime soon. So no. it's, uh, <laughs> and it, it's probably of questionable utility anyway. It, it's, uh, it's very, uh, it's interesting for sure. And actually really helpful for research, but uh, making people's tumors uh, glow with firefly protein is probably not medically useful. Um. <laughs> yeah. GFP is very, very useful, but nobody's going to be walking around, you know, lighting up the <laughs> yeah, firefly. So, so, so you've got a clear target product profile, so to speak um, for your, your cancer indications, your, your aging indications, and you've already alluded to it, it's a tougher nut to crack. The, the FDA does not recognize uh, aging as an indication. There are age-related aging-related indications. What's your thinking and how do you view those markets where you, know, you can't go after all solid tumors when it comes to aging in the same way? So what is the Oshin approach? There's, I think, kind of a, a pretty well-trodden path in terms of indications that people think that senolytics will be helpful for you. I mean, common ones are things like, you know, osteoarthritis, chronic kidney disease, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, uh, even atherosclerosis, general frailty. 
And so what our, our plan is over the, as, as Oncocentix makes its way into the clinic and through its first clinical trial, we're doing a bunch of these very targeted preclinical efficacy studies with Oshin, where we're actually taking models that we think would be acceptable to the regulators, and we're looking for endpoints that would be viable clinical endpoints. And so we're going to run through a series of these and basically let that data inform what the first indication will be. But things like, I think I like chronic kidney disease, for example, because effectively the biomarker is the disease. I mean, the the function of your kidneys is measure, measured by their uh, filtration rate is what you're after, and you can observe it really quickly. And so with with some things, you think of like atherosclerosis, for example, like making the, you know, the arteries more flexible or even trying to reduce plaque or something isn't necessarily an, an endpoint in and of itself. Like you're following out looking for things like heart attacks and mortality, which are much longer studies. And so there's, these are some of the questions that we're looking to answer. Like in our early studies, um, we made mice live a lot longer and uh, we showed that their bone density went up as we treated them, which is pretty remarkable. I mean, we started this wow. at, at two years of age and bone density went up, not down, <laughs> so, which is pretty, pretty wild. Like uh, most osteoporosis treatments you know, can slow bone loss, but don't regenerate it. And, uh, and certainly not to that extent. And so uh, that's a, an interesting one, but then also it kind of begs the question, well, is density enough a viable endpoint or do you need to show like bone strength as it uh, applies to breaks? And so this is kind of the, the path that's ahead of us over the next, you know, like say nine months or so. And uh, I think that it's, we have a, at this point, you know, a good understanding of what the treatment does and how it works. It's uh, it's more tied to the regulatory strategy than it is, I guess, the scientific aspects of it at this point. So let's talk about that. This is a much more involved technology because you are dealing with the lipid nanoparticle, which has a peptide on it. You've got the DNA payload. Uh, you also have, um, I'm not sure how you refer to it, your, your activator that... Uh, the dimerizer? <laughs> how does that piece what we call it. The dimerizer, yeah. How does that piece work? Uh, so... The, the way that works in general is the, the suicide gene is a version of caspase 9. And so in, in your body, in your genome, caspase 9 is, is made of something called pro-caspase 9, a monomeric version of this protein. And it's created in your body with a, a little cap on the end of it, basically, that prevents it from dimerizing accidentally. And basically, like your, your body's kind of building hand grenades in its cells and doesn't want to blow itself up. And so it, it puts construction with the safety cap on and when your cell wants it it uh it grabs two of these things cuts the cap off and pulls them together and that kind of triggers the next step of this cascade and so our version of it is designed so that the two halves can be brought together with a drug there's a small molecule and so yeah the original version of the suicide gene was inducible caspase 9 it was made by bellicum and a scientist came out of baylor i believe but uh they actually had built a small molecule that brought them together called AP1903, or uh, they have a research version called AP2187. And so that was actually the first iteration we used. And it's been used in humans uh, previously to treat graft versus host after adoptive T-cell transplants. And so uh, it, they would basically take the donor cells, transduce them with a lentivirus that gave them the suicide gene. And then if the patient, when they put it into the patient, if they got graft versus host, they would administer the dimerizer and kill the cells. And it was pretty impressive. Like within 45 minutes, they as well over 90% were dead. Like the, tr the reaction would stop dead in its tracks. And, uh, but uh, the issue with that is, is that it's not available readily in GMP. So 
uh, Bellicom basically doesn't want to really share it, and it's not an approved drug. And so you you could conceivably work a deal to to get their version of it, but then you'd have to get it approved also. And that complicates our regulatory path. And so the version we're using is actually dimerized with rapamycin. And we've also built a version that is dimerized uh, or auto-dimerized. So hmm. it's built to just seek out itself and activate spontaneously. And that uh, we initially built that actually to spread out the death of the cells so that they wouldn't all die at once. Because if you administer it like that, they get into cells at different rates. There's different levels of transcription. So cell death gets spread out over a while. And the uh, we think that that's probably actually a, a good way of doing this long term. But uh, in the short term, you get a, a margin of safety by making it require the dimerizer. And so it can't just like auto activate. And so the uh, the rapamycin one is nice because that's a generic approved drug and you can just pick it up off the shelf. And we use like yeah, it also lets you establish kind of the combination therapy of uh, of it by itself initially first. Yeah, so you can uh, you have like kind of all the benefits of the control and the the dose you need of of rapamycin to dimerize it is uh, well below therapeutic dose. So you just you know take a small amount of it once and you're good. So it's a it's a, a nice combination I think for the first foray into the clinic. So let's talk about that. From from these two programs, you've already spun out Oncocinex to separate the uh, senolytic programs from the, uh, I guess, oncolytic programs. And where do you go from there? On the cancer side, the next versions of them are immunotherapeutic. So we start bringing things like not just killing the cell, but making it express things like viral protein, cytokines, CD40 ligand, that kind of thing to, to wrangle in the immune system with the response. On the aging type side, the senolytic side, looking at different promoters and, and building kind of new, more synthetic versions of these that uh, you know are target broader ranges of cells and things like that as the, the field moves ahead, I think is attractive. But uh, I think where where it really goes beyond that is beyond simply killing cells. So we looked at senolytics effectively as kind of the the low hanging fruit in the aging space, and it's it's the thing that we can hit now with the hammer we have today, basically. But uh, but there's all sorts of other interesting things. I mean, running from like making your telomeres longer to reprogramming uh, cells in situ, you know, trying to rejuvenate the cells that you have. Um, so that I think we kind of go down those paths in the in the future. And right now we're already working with multiple collaborators who are targeting things like this. And I think that's a that's really where you go after the senolytics. Because I think in many respects, senescent cells they kind of limit your body's ability to regenerate. They're, they're putting a brake on it. But uh, there's also a gas pedal. And so if you once you can take the brake away, I think there's opportunity to regenerate things you couldn't regenerate before. And some of these will happen naturally, as they've been shown through lots of these studies at this point. But, uh, but I think there's other things you could regenerate more proactively. I'm really excited for you to publish some uh, data on um, the, the expression of things like T-cell receptors and, and things like that. I think that that's got a, a lot of potential promise um, to see the efficiency and, and ability of, of that kind of expression. That uh, would be very, very interesting to see uh, in vivo. Yeah, we have our first uh, manuscript for the oncology stuff that's actually just about finished. Hopefully it will be uh, submitted quite soon. It will, I believe it's covering the immuno-oncology stuff. So not not making T-cell receptors, but uh, but code, the, that one I think has the CD40 ligand data in it, which is pretty Pretty cool. We you do it with and without checkpoint inhibition. Oh, very cool. So, your background is atypical as a biotech CEO, and 
I love to ask people about what they, what a previous experience they like to bring to bear and what things they kind of like to leave behind. You talked a little bit about that in your thesis uh, of your approach to this industry. And I'd like to pull on that thread a little bit more. Um, how does your previous experience inform what you're doing here uh, with uh, Oshin? Well, I think, uh, I mean, in some respects, it's, it's a perspective. I mean, I, I've long believed that the, the greatest innovations happen when disciplines meet, Absolutely. that it, there is a benefit to having people who see the problem differently together. And I mean, with the, my first biotech, for example, I uh, licensed some of the core technology out of uh, David Baltimore's lab at Caltech. Mm-hmm. And says, you know, Nobel laureate's lab, you're famous, publishes amazing stuff. And we're able to, to walk in and, and get that technology, exclusive worldwide rights to it, you know, effectively unchallenged because no one was really looking at it as being a therapeutic tool. I think most of the place just saw it as a research tool and we thought, well, we can modify this and use it therapeutically. And so that I, I would have never, you know, outbid a pharma or, you know, a, a venture back, you know, rockstar biotech team. Like it, I, I didn't have any of the resources to do it or any of the track record. It was mostly that we were looking in a place other people weren't looking. And even though it was from a, you know, a, a world-class lab, people still weren't looking at it as a therapeutic. And I think when I started looking at, uh, at you know, what would become ocean and stuff, you know, it really got started when I was looking at these uh, studies that came out of the Mayo Clinic with the transgenic mice. And and I remember I looked over at this guy sitting next to me and I was like, that's amazing. But if it were me, I'd do it totally differently. And uh, <laughs> and he actually came up to me afterwards, asked me how I do it. And that's how Ocean got started. That's, that's great. Gary Hudson, he, uh, he started, <laughs> he is the CEO for the first two years. He basically said, if, if you write it up, I'll, I'll fund it. I'll run it until you can take over. We, we just got to do it. And, and yeah, so he I think uh, he got more than he bargained for. That took that took a while. It took longer to transition than I think we expected. It always so, uh, does. He was running it for the first two years, but uh, but yeah, we so wrote up this plan, licensed the technology, and and even with the nanoparticle, uh, I mean, it's another great example of this. That nanoparticle technologies had a bunch of high profile failures due to their toxicity, and I think most of the space is kind of down on them at the time, like I don't know, say four or five years ago, and. Mm-hmm. This uh, this particular one that you know John Lewis had built was was quite unique, and I don't think in general people were giving it credit for that. Like, and but it, it I encountered it, got introduced to him actually a, a couple of years beforehand, and uh, and even though it, it wasn't particularly useful for what I was doing at the time, it really stuck out to me that it it was genuinely different than the others, and so. Called him up. I was like, "Hey, you know, you want to cure aging?" And uh, <laughs> out of the blue, remember me. So and uh, that's the founding that, point. That's it. You you just call him up and said, "Hey, you want to cure?" I mean, kind of like uh, um, you know, uh, Steve Jobs calling uh, the Pepsi CEO up and saying, "Hey, do you want to make sugar water? or Do you want to come, you know, change the world?" You just said, "Hey, you want to cure aging with this technology?" And <laughs> yeah. That was not necessarily the, yeah. the indications he was going after. You know. Um, oh yeah, he is doing totally different stuff with it. And uh, yeah. and so as a, I think you know he. So we'd been introduced previously. He knew who I was like. I reached out to him, but uh, but we didn't know each other well or anything. And yeah, I think he he probably thought it was a little crazy. But uh, um, but basically, yeah, sure, <laughs> I'll make you some nanoparticles. Let's let's do it. And uh, yeah, that's a you know next thing you know. It started really as this kind of you know arm's length thing, like we'd you know pay him to make nanoparticles for us and uh, we took a license option on it when we got started so and put a little research agreement in place because we didn't have a lab uh, or anything to do the work then and uh 
Um, yeah, and you know, fast forward a few years, he's our chief scientist, and uh, companies work very closely. They're practically joined at the hip. Let's keep, let's keep digging there a little bit because the you know my I guess uh, you know outsider's perspective without that that color on it was that the this was something that came out of the lab and and it wasn't pieced together from uh, from these kind of dis- disparate areas and come around to to say let's let's do this together. Is that a better under? Oh yeah, I mean so. John's lab, you know, at the University of Alberta is, you know, uh, primarily a translational oncology lab focused on metastases. Right. And so they, even with the nanoparticle, I think in its early days, it was just being developed to deliver things like chemotherapeutics more effectively. And uh, before, I think that was actually before John even got it. But uh, when uh, John's been using it to deliver things like interfering RNAs, for example, to knock down different pathways and so they're, they're focused on on that you know totally totally different approach you, even the stuff they do in cancer is different than the way we go after it on clinics and so it was a it was just this tool and what, what's actually kind of interesting is so he acquired that ip um from a guy named roy duncan and uh, roy is the first guy who characterized the fusion protein who i think first guy who put it in nanoparticle i believe as well and uh but it was this academic spin out basically and john saw it and latched onto it kind of i guess similar to me i suppose he, he saw it, he's like oh that's amazing and, but <laughs> he basically scooped up all the ip for it like if he just bought it from the guy <laughs> he's like oh i'll do something great with this and he so that was how like uh these, these early companies got a hold of it and uh it was yeah, kind of a, a fascinating thing where the the technology has jumped out uh <laughs> i suppose to a couple of people now and uh and just said, Let, let's grab it. There's got to be something great we can do with it. So as you build this team, and and this is a uh, still a, a very much a virtual company, right? Yeah. So we have uh, some, obviously we do a bunch of lab work, but we do it with uh, sure. uh, with Entos up there. And then now we're uh, down in uh, J-Labs in San Diego. Oh, excellent. For, uh, but yeah, we've we've been spread out kind of around the, the country and the world. But I the, the general plan is at some point we want to be able to do all of the manufacturing in-house, uh, but we want to do that at GMP scale, so a much larger build-out. And it's expensive to do those things before you get into clinic, so we're uh, operating like this for now. And so what are the kind of things that kind of the, the blocking and tackling of, of, of kind of building your startup? For, for biotechs, building, building a distributed team is almost a necessity these days, especially for a small team with labs, you know, distributed J-labs, like you said. Um, what are kind of the, the key learnings that you've had? You've done this several times, serial entrepreneur versus earlier companies that may have been less distributed than now. What have you learned and what are you using now? I mean, it's basically impossible to be good at everything. And especially when you're trying to push the bounds of what's really possible in science or feasible you tend to find experts who are scattered around the world who are good at their thing, but not necessarily the other pieces. So you're you're often kind of forced into this aspect of, of working distributed, which I mentioned before. But uh, I think as a general rule, you want to do stuff in-house that is kind of your core technology. And it's a little odd with our relationship with, uh, with Entos and Alberta and that they're not technically, you know, like our internal team, but we work very very closely with them and uh the but generally speaking that the thing that's going to break the thing that you're going to have to change the thing that makes you you it's best if your hands are on it because you learn so much more from the things that don't work than the things that do but uh but other stuff like i don't want to have a vivarium like i'm not a vet i don't want to have mice running around or monkeys or anything like that like the the skill set required to 
to manage a study like that um, and analyze the data are are very different skills. And so you tend to like when we're actually doing studies, this aspect of handing it to a third party to to test it in a, a certain model that they're experts at has some benefits in that, you know, it's, it is a third party. Like they, you know, they're, it's going to come out however it's going to come out. And uh, so it gives, in some respects, a bit of credibility to it too. You know, that wasn't you having wishful thinking about it. Like, um, Absolutely. <laughs> and even with a, like when I was working with Immusoft, we did things like white label all of the reagents and have other labs run the process, not knowing what they're doing in it, and, um, which is, is a pretty difficult thing to do with the cell therapy, really. Uh, yeah, we, really? we did, it, did it several times when we were getting started because the that process is very proprietary. And uh, but we shipping cells around could be difficult for one, but also there's other things where they want to test different things in the process. And so they had to be able to run it, but you didn't want them to know <laughs> what what all the secrets were. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was it's great. I mean, you learn things really fast when you do that. And, uh, and the fact that we were able to do that even really early on, I think gave people a lot of confidence that it wasn't, we weren't like kidding ourselves or didn't have some, you know, some magic spell over the lab, you know, that you see this uh, more often than you'd like where, you know, it works perfectly <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> it just doesn't work when you transfer it and uh, no one knows what. Oh yeah. Um, uh, no, that <laughs> the very uh, frustrating, uh, murky attribute of science, I guess. But uh, yeah. So, in this case, you know, we're since, you know, they're making those things in, in Canada and I'm in Seattle. Like when, when I would normally having my choice, you know, I put my little office cube directly in the lab. So I'm like right there. It's like, I think it's important. But, uh, but since you're working uh, remotely like this, you have to be, you know, more intentional, uh, you know, keeping up on, on looking at all the data and, and also making sure that, you know, you're comfortable sharing things that go wrong as much as things go right. Is this, this happens a lot if you're not there something goes wrong and they don't necessarily want to tell you what went wrong right away or uh, they try to redo it or something like that and like i said in my mind you learn more things from uh what goes wrong than what goes right and so you want to you want to really make sure you have good communication with it absolutely when, when you send it off to like the animal lab you're not going to know any of those things it's just gonna <laughs> it's gonna come back you send them whether you send them and uh but when you're building it and you're doing your internal tests it, that's your opportunity to see how much the variance really is, you know, like to, to look at the granular data, see, you know, how, how, how much of it, how big are these air bars, you know, <laughs> how reliable is this really? In your background, coming from both the computing and the bio side of things, you have a, a unique viewpoint that we've already touched on a little bit and, and you've um, taken the time to, you know, share your thoughts with us. And you also um, mentor kind of the next generation what are some of the things that you tell the Teal Fellowship former students um, and other students that you've mentored through other programs? What are you telling next generation of students? Well, I think uh, obviously a very broad question because like everyone tends to come from a very different perspective and uh, and I think often needs to hear different things or focus on different things. But uh, you know, one thing that jumped out at me when I was first you know, talking about making the jump from computing into bio, you know, that Traditionally, you go get a PhD, do a couple of postdocs, you know, you figure things out, and then maybe you you start something if you're going to do that. And uh, and so going from like no background in bio, like I think the last actual bio class I had was in junior high school, and so that like coming from nothing, you know, it's not very traditional. But the way I looked at it was that you can't really get a PhD in something no one has done before. So if you're trying to do something that generally the world's not trying to do. 
you're already going to be left to your own devices to a certain extent. And so then the question becomes, you know, finding people who, who know the parts you don't. And, uh, and what, what's actually a, a thought kind of, uh, fortunate about the space is most of the people, you know, I would talk to you about this when I, back then I started trying to program the body, right? I want to build my app store. And there was no shortage of people who wouldn't hesitate to say how stupid they thought that idea was. Really? So, <laughs> there would be pretty big assholes about it. Yeah, there, there's, there's an awful lot of that is retarded. It won't work. <laughs> you shouldn't even try. And, uh, and, but that was actually really valuable because I would, you know, trap these people but from but from the perspective of somebody who 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 comes from the bio side and and kind of stepped over a little bit into the into the software side throughout my career just a little bit saying kind of you know and it's a very nice catchy line of you know an app store for the human body but i can see how a you know a 30-year physician would almost take offense to that kind of i guess um reductionist thinking but in your mind you're not reducing anything you're kind of adding this new understanding Is, is that right yeah, yeah, I think that that's an interesting point. A lot of, in fact, I'd say medicinal chemistry runs amok by being overly reductionist. Um, <laughs> like if I can hit this target, something good will happen. Um, you're just chemicals after all. And I think that, that that's mostly a problem because it, it misunderstands the fundamental nature of life. That uh, that the essence of life, I think, is information. And that that is not the way the world looks at it. And now it's increasingly become more acceptable in the last you know, decade or so. But back then, especially, it was, you know, heresy, basically, like, the, <laughs> no one liked this idea at all. And, uh, and so I think that it's not so much that you're reducing anything, it's just that this is the fundamental nature of the beast, like, be that without, you can have all the chemicals, but without the information, it's just a pile of chemicals, that 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 aspect of what makes life life is what you need to, to think about. And it's not that you should ignore chemistry entirely or that you can't do anything good by manipulating it. But, uh, but if you're, I, I always looked at it as trying to find a, a more accurate depiction of life as opposed to reducing it to some kind of more bite-sized thing. Cause it, in the end, if you look at the, this kind of information theory uh, of life, I guess the, uh, it's not fully understood. I mean, we, you can sequence the genome, sure, but like things like control logic and how it's actually managed is, you know, I'd say well beyond the understanding of the field currently. And so it, it's not that we we know it all; it's just that we we know enough to be dangerous, basically. <laughs> we, we can manipulate it a bit. Exactly. I actually look at it as probably was more valuable in this respect, other than just computer science, was that specifically I had an interest in computer security. I'd done an awful lot of hacking, and when I first started trying to load DNA into cells. All I could think about was this is basically a, a buffer overflow exploit on a cell. And you're, <laughs> you're really just, <laughs> it is, it's, cells don't have protected memory the same way a computer does. So there's like, it's not like a perfect analogy, but basically you're getting a little bit of shell code in there. And if you write it right, it executes and causes a pretty large downstream stream consequence. But you really just have this little bit of code that has to execute. And that's effectively what a virus does, right? And that's a, a thumb drive that can walk around and make copies of thumb drives. Like it's, a, it's, it's really just a computer program at that point, like with, with the delivery vector, but it, it's, it's not life in the, the sense of like a cell is life, you know, it's, it's much more primitive. And, uh, and all it does is have to, to load itself to make a copy of itself. Like in all the resources that it will need must be provided by a toast. Like there's, it, it's only a program at its core. 
And so, but anyone can see that, you know, a virus can seriously alter life and uh, um, with, with a little bit of code. And so that, that was actually the, the mindset I was going into this with that. Like I, I might not say have like access to the source code of windows, but I know if I stuff some code into this little buffer that I can break it and make it do something else. <laughs> and that's a, uh, that's what you need. I suppose you have to get started there. Eventually maybe you understand it all, but, uh, but uh, initially we're trying to figure out how to, you know, manipulate smaller aspects of it. Actually, you know what I think super fascinating too, is the, uh, what, if you think back, we had viruses manipulating DNA for a couple of decades now. And, uh, and mm-hmm. to varying degrees of success and risk. But uh, what's really amazing about the technology we're using is that you can, in theory, do it cheaply. So, you know, 80% of our cost of goods is just the DNA. And DNA is actually pretty cheap to make. Like, it's, you know, basically sugar, water, and E. coli. And, uh, and so being able to take the cellular process out of this and to assemble nanoparticles in a microfluidic system allow you to manipulate uh, information in life at a scale that wouldn't have been feasible before. And I think that that's actually a really interesting aspect of this and that people often latch on to these ideas of, okay, these treatments, you know, they're cutting edge or expensive. Who's going to get to you know, afford them or pay for them. And, and I think really they're going to become relatively inexpensive and, and definitely far less expensive than doing nothing. And so this, uh, this bit of uh, innovation here in terms of how, we're getting the the information into the body is actually, I think, going to have probably more profound effects than any of the treatments on their own. Well, and as we progress and we're able to, I guess, invent new medicines a little bit closer to the metal, so to speak, these kinds of discussions are going to be really important about how are we going to treat when we have the kind of capabilities that um, your companies are starting to to really unlock. So Matt Schultz, uh, CEO of, uh, of Ocean Biotechnologies and Oncosynex, uh, just a fascinating uh, technology. Thank you so much again uh, for, for spending the time with me. Yeah, absolutely. Great time. Advances in drug delivery and gene therapy are enabling entirely new forms of medication that are entering clinical development now, that are able to look beyond what they see or feel and instead act as these sort of information therapeutics, potentially treating diseases such as cancer or age-related diseases by exploiting the information within the cells themselves. Thanks to Matt Schultz for being so gracious with his time. This is the Tomorrow Scale Podcast. I'm Justin Briggs.